welcome to the Stories from the Field podcast, the podcast where we talk to political scientists about how we know what we know and what field research looks like on the ground. I'm Ora Sekely, Associate Professor of Political Science at Clark University and Director of the Program in Peace and Conflict Studies. And I'm joined by my co-host, Peter Krauss, Associate Professor of Political Science at Boston College and Research Affiliate in the MIT Security Studies Program. Hey, Peter, how are you? I'm great, given the circumstances. How are you, Ora? Similar given the circumstances, which I guess is the the disclaimer that we all use these days. Indeed, indeed. Well, here's to hopefully a healthier and safer 2021. If you are new to the podcast, in every episode, we talk with political scientists about some of the most important aspects of doing field research. Based on the book we co-edited with the same title, Stories from the Field, A Guide to Navigating Fieldwork in Political Science. On today's episode, we are talking about planning, conducting, and analyzing surveys and experiments in the field. These are methods that, you know, you and I generally don't do, so we are really excited to go behind the curtain and learn more about them with our guests. In the interest of full transparency, we recorded this episode over multiple sessions. Uh, We think it actually flows pretty well, but if there are any weird transitions or repetitions that our listeners hear, uh, that's our fault, not our guests. (laughs) Definitely. So for this episode, we are really lucky to be joined by three fantastic scholars who have a lot of experience doing surveys and using experimental methods. Kristen Fabi, Associate Professor at the Harvard Business School. Matthew Kansian, a PhD candidate at MIT in political science, and Kristen Mikulich, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Vanderbilt University. We will start with Kristen Mikulich. Welcome, Kristen. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Very good. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your own experience doing field research. How did you get started doing this kind of research? And is there a first experience doing research using experimental methods that kind of stands out in your memory? Yeah, so I got interested in this kind of work because I actually was extremely torn between going into policy versus going into academia. And so I did work in the policy world for a few years before deciding to go get my PhD. And what I learned there is that policymakers oftentimes are just doing, 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 and there's a lot of time pressures and there's not very much time sometimes to do research and thinking about why are we doing these things? Or, you know, how could we do them better? And so I think with the academic PhD, you have the toolkit actually to evaluate and think a little bit more about, you know, policy from a really social science or using social science insights to sort of help think about how policy can be more effective. So I think that doing RCT work is actually really exciting for anybody who really likes to think. So more, you know, classic academic thinkers, Mm -hmm. but also people who really care about policy impact and, you know, wanting to use their skills to positively affect the world around us. You know, it's so interesting that you mentioned this, like this overlap or the intersection between academic research and the policy world, because it felt a little bit like that was this kind of unspoken theme in the book, in Stories from the Field, that I think that was something that was on the minds of a lot of the people who contributed chapters, which is what is what does our research look like in the wild, <laughs> as it were, and, and how does it affect policy? 
Yeah, and I think that it's interesting because there seems to be two different types of academics, right? There's some people who are really hesitant to do anything policy relevant, and they really feel uncomfortable thinking about affecting the world. And, you know, they think of themselves maybe more as an objective observer. But people who do human subjects research have accepted by interacting with other people that, you know, you're going to affect them, even if they're in a focus group you know, you're making certain issues salient for them. They're having a social interaction there. If you're doing an ethnography in a village for a year, you're definitely going to be affecting people around you. And I think it becomes very apparent for RCT work that there will be an effect or there's actually an intended effect. But it's definitely something I think motivates scholars to do this kind of methodology that they really care about wanting to do policy relevant research and really positively impact the world around us. That's really interesting. Just, you know, for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with this methodology, can you tell us what RCT stands for? Oh, yeah. Um, So RCTs, that stands for a randomized control trial. And it's another word for a field experiment. So it's when there is a random assignment of a treatment and a control group or multiple treatment groups. And they could be individuals, they could be villages or, you know, local governments that are examined. But yeah, it's doing that, but it's doing it in a field setting. So rather than a lab experiment, which is done by inviting people, the human subjects to come into a laboratory and either interact with other people face to face or interact with them over computers. So are there challenges to this particular methodology that you think are unique to doing field experiments? Or do you see the challenges of field experiments as as actually pretty similar to the challenges that we see in other kinds of political science research? So I think it's a little column A, a little column B. There's definitely multiple ways where a field experiment or RCT is going to have similar challenges as someone who's going and launching a survey or going and doing qualitative uh, work or, you know, collecting behavioral data. I think that, you know, some of those similarities are coming up with an interesting question, knowing whether the question is at all locally appropriate or relevant, coming up with, you know, how social science theory fits the context that requires a lot of, you know, on the ground, you know, qualitative field work that leads up to a good RCT. So a lot of similarities in that groundwork. But then where things depart, I think, is in kind of collaborating with implementing partners and donors. And not all field experiments are policy field experiments, but many are. So I think where they really diverge from other research is when you're collaborating actively with an implementing partner and a donor to test policy. And this can be really challenging because a lot of RCTs are new to donors and implementing partners. So Sometimes, you know, they come to this, oh, what are we doing? Why isn't it a normal evaluation where you show up at the end and talk to people? And, you know, to be honest, (laughs) a lot of the existing evaluation of policies is not done in a very rigorous way. And so a lot of times, you know, null effects or negative effects might get swept under the rug, so to say, and people, you know, kind of hunt for the positive impacts. So it, so I think that you're throwing the, the IP, typically, that's the implementing partner into a new type of collaboration. And they're not used to that. Like, oh, you want to monitor everything that I'm doing? You, you know, it's not just the random assignment, but oh, 
I have to have weekly meetings with you. Uh, you know, I have to show you, you know, all of the, the aspects of this implementation so that if it works, it can be replicated. So that can be challenging. And you really have to think through how is this research benefiting the implementing partner? How can I help them understand what those benefits are and help them build the extra time into their implementation plans that it's going to take to collaborate with this research team in a really ongoing, tight-knit way. So speaking of some of the challenges around this kind of work, it seems like there's a related set of challenges that come up a lot in your chapter where you talk about environmental and technological limitations. In addition to the challenges that you just laid out of, you know, like working with implementing partners and making sure that they really understand the purpose of your work and why this is maybe a little different than the kind of monitoring and evaluation they're used to. So do you have any advice that you want to offer for folks who are thinking about doing experimental research for the first time on how to navigate some of those environmental challenges or the technological issues that might come up in the field? Oh, yes. (laughs) So I think that regardless of where the research is taking place, there's going to be environmental and technological challenges. And they're just going to be different in the different contexts. So it's really important to be um, networking with researchers that do research in the context that you're in, or that somebody on the research team is extremely familiar with that local context. And so then you'll be able to anticipate certain things that might happen. So if in Mali, for example, the internet can be really bad in, especially outside the capital. And so, you know, one example of a challenge that's unanticipated, maybe if you don't realize this is, oh, geez, my um, devices that I collect the survey data all of a sudden need a software update and won't run without it. (laughs) And so I guess I'll have to rent a room at a nearby hotel to try (laughs) to uh, get good enough internet to do that update, or I just lose those devices and, you know, enumerators can't do their job and I've, you know, wasted all of this time. So technological problems, having extra technology on hand or really anticipating how can I get good Wi-Fi if I'm in hinterland areas is really important. I would not have thought about the update issue. That's such a good point. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, and if you know the context and you know, like, geez, the Wi-Fi is going to struggle, like nowadays you can, you know, bring in some places you can buy um, dongles and kind of create your own Wi-Fi hotspots and so forth. But, you know, it depends. Another kind of similar issue I had was in Uganda once, um, there was a really, really big enumeration team. And so there was some people who had newer devices and some people who had older versions of the same device. And so the survey was piloted on one of them, but not the other. And so that led to a glitch, you know, and really... I think we lost, I don't know, a a couple of months of, you know, just a very small part of a project, but still nonetheless, we were like, oh, what a bummer. Like, we didn't realize that just having the last model or whatever would make the survey software function so differently. And even getting in people who work in low income settings know that getting devices into countries can be difficult. So sometimes you might have to like hide them around your luggage or sometimes you're asked to pay bribes for them and you need to research what kind of things that you're allowed to bring in and what might happen. Because in some places there aren't devices to buy. Like you have to bring them in if you want to use them. 
or they might be extremely expensive. So even really basic, you know, issues with uh, de- electronic devices can be actually taking up more research efforts than maybe some of the normal things that we think about that might take up our brain power. That's really interesting. I I would not have thought about many of those challenges. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much, Kristen Mikulic, for joining us. We'll be back with you shortly. We now welcome Kristen Fabe and Matthew Kansian to the podcast. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us, Peter. Yeah, thanks. All right. Well, we're really excited to have you here. And you two are actually just a few of the co-authors in our volume that jointly worked on a project. So let's talk a little bit about collaboration. First and foremost, Kristen, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you actually first met and kind of decided to do this project together. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. The collaboration started at an MIT faculty party, the Christmas party, which I think all of us have probably been to on this episode. And I happened to run into my advisor, my former advisor, Roger Peterson there. And I was telling him about some of the work I was doing or interested in doing in Iraq. And he said, Kristen, you have to meet this PhD student who I'm working with. He's really early. He's in his first or second year. Can't exactly remember at the time, but I think you guys would really get along. And within about a week or two weeks, I think Matt and I I had a meeting. And then within about four weeks, maybe six weeks, Matt and I were in the field together in Iraq. So it was a pretty quick turnaround time from when we first met, but he had Roger's endorsement and blessing. And he now has mine after this amazing collaborative experience that we had in the field. But that's how things really started off. Yeah, it was really a whirlwind sort of marriage here in, in some ways. And then at that next meeting, when I went to Kristen's office. I mean, obviously, we got along very well, and we're both very interested in working in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. And then she said, well, are you maybe interested in doing something together? I was like, yeah, let's start planning it. And she said, well, you, you could take some time to think about it. I said, no, no, I think we're good. So it turned out very well. So I, I'm glad that we did that. So a follow-up question then on that, which is, you know, so Kristen, you mentioned that, you know, you already had this connection of both doing your PhD at the same institution. So, you know, to what extent, I'll ask, start with Matt here, did that kind of, you know, bond make it easier to decide that you wanted to do work together? I mean, in a broader sense, when you're looking for a co-author or a collaborator, what are the traits that you're looking for? How do you decide if this is a good person for you to work with? Could you talk a little bit about that? Right. So Kristen was, I think, around 10 years ahead of me, obviously, at MIT. So we really did need that bridge through the advisor. And I think that one of the great things about it is that the sort of traditional model that I get the sense of from academia is that you have an older faculty member who sort of has resources and an idea and sort of tasks the younger person to go out and explore and, you know, do the legwork. And the real great thing about this, where it was not sort of my boss or a senior faculty member at my institution was that we could fit into a much better dynamic where she still had the sort of connections and know-how and experience. And I had the time to do legwork having at that time having no kids and you know, only a dog to take care of at home. So I, I could go out and do a lot of the legwork and benefit from her experience, but with a much more collaborative dynamic vis-a-vis the sort of uh, traditional tasking. So actually that sort of near uh, relationship where I could still benefit from her experience, I think was one of the key elements in making that a successful project. Yeah. And that makes sense. And, you know, Kristen, to follow up with you, and I, you know, I hesitate to say this given that we were in the same class, but as the more quote unquote senior scholar, 
Valor, I guess, in the in the collaboration here, you know, what was it like from your perspective? And kind of a related question, you know, one of the issues we know a lot happens with collaboration is the issue of credit and making sure that people, whether it's your co-author or enumerators or otherwise, are getting kind of, you know, they're just due for the work that they do. So how do you kind of see that relationship either in this particular project or as you kind of transition from being a junior scholar to a more senior scholar? I think those are some great questions, actually. And one of the things I was thinking about when I first partnered with Matt, and I'll get to the co-authoring question in a moment, but I really wanted somebody who had a lot of energy and a lot of ambition, but also sort of a healthy dose of skepticism about quantitative work. And Matt checked all of those boxes. So he was willing to give it a try, but he also really wanted to be in the field. And that was the equation that I was looking for in a co-author, was somebody who cared deeply about the field work, but was willing to give some of these new quantitative methods a try and also was smart enough to learn them and learn them very quickly, which Matt was. I think when we got the data back and Matt spent more time in Iraq for this project than I did as I was back and forth between Turkey and Iraq and a couple of other places over the course of the summer when we did most of the data collection. And the two pieces that we've published, one for your edited volume and then another one in Perspectives, I think it was just kind of equal co-authorship. So Matt and I also had a good rhythm in terms of writing those pieces and that Matt would take a first cut. I tend to be a little bit more of a perfectionist. I wrote this very long and detailed qualitative book. And so I can tend to be really perfectionist in the writing process, which is annoying. So Matt would do like a first cut and then I would really, really, really polish it. And then we would do these rounds of back and forth. And so I think in the pieces that we've published, that's been uh, really helpful. And I'm not one, maybe to the detriment of my career, but I've never really been one to try to claim a stake for work that isn't mine. And so Matt has since gone off and done some single author papers. And that's completely fine with me. And I think we also try to give credit to the people who helped us in the field, particularly the coordinators and the heads of the enumeration teams that were really imperative to making this work possible. We try to give them a shout out whenever we publish something on the basis of this data collection. Yeah, that's great. You know, one of the things I've, I've talked about with some others before is that maybe, you know, can we move towards kind of like a, a movie credit model to some extent, instead of just like the author byline, we also have, you know, other roles that are given their just due as opposed to just kind of thank yous, but I think any of these things is, is, is good progress in this context. A related point I wanted to emphasize from what you said, which I thought was fascinating, Kristen, is that you said you wanted to have someone to work with who would be skeptical of your methods. And I think that that's wonderful because honestly, I think a lot of the time the default is maybe, oh, I want to find someone who shares my exact values or ways of doing things. And you said, no, I want someone who kind of will hold me to account. So I think that that's a really excellent point. A final question related to this is, I think it's wonderful that the two of you kind of, you know, met inside to collaborate in part because you had this, you know, joint advisor, etc. Do you have recommendations or suggestions for people who kind of want to build their network for doing fieldwork or otherwise? Because obviously not everyone has the same access to a network of people doing, you know, similar work or uh, interested in similar topics. So uh, maybe Matt, as someone who's, you know, I believe a, a PhD candidate and a grad student who's coming close to finishing, what your thoughts are on kind of building a network in this in this context? Yeah, there's an element of us wanting to be sort of bashful or shy about making connections through social networks where I think some extent we're worried like, well, is this nepotism or whatnot? But I, I think that it's actually something to really be embraced. I mean, that human trust, some sort of unquantifiable, intangible element that is built through common connection, that that's something that's common throughout you know human history and continues to be important. And that knowing someone who you trust, who then introduces you to somebody else, I mean, really taking a chance and trying to explore these other connections, I think that's something to be embraced and not something to be sort of shy or reticent about. 
Yeah. I mean, I think no one, or at least most people probably don't actually like, you know, quote unquote networking in terms of just trying to make social connections, et cetera. But yeah, at the end of the day, a lot of the best research often comes in collaboration, working with others. So finding ways to make those connections, I think is really important. To shift gears a bit, Kristen, I want to go to you for a question about training. So, you know, in many ways, if we think about field surveys or field experiments like, you know, you guys did in Iraq, those are some of the most complex and sophisticated methods we have because you're both doing a survey, which by itself, in terms of designing questions and uh, deciding who to ask them to, et cetera, is quite complex. But then also doing it maybe in a an area where you don't live or aren't familiar with is just a lot of ethical and logistical challenges wrapped up together. So could you just tell our listeners a little bit about what training you got to kind of do these methods and you know, at what point in your career or graduate career you kind of learned about this stuff? Those are some great questions, Peter. I would say that I think in graduate school, the emphasis at MIT was really squarely on people doing a lot of field work. And so I took some classes at MIT that were about qualitative methods in the field, not so much quantitative methods in the field. And I feel like I learned from scholars who were more senior to me about how to actually negotiate some of these sticky field situations that arise when doing qualitative work, not when doing quantitative work. The Quantitative work, I will say, that's something that has shifted and changed over the scope of my career. So when I started out in this business some time ago, I saw myself almost purely as a qualitative scholar, and the field has very much moved into a quantitative and experimental direction, as you guys both know. And I think, so there, a lot of the learning was me partnering with people who were younger and a bit more junior, like Matt, as he was in grad school, learning some of these methods, working together with somebody like him enabled me to kind of get a re-education in a way of what was cutting edge and state of the art uh, in terms of quantitative methods. But I'll go out on a limb and say that I think that in some instances, when you have a complex field environment and you have complex methods, sometimes things need to align really perfectly. And in our case, I think we had this window of opportunity in which we could conduct the survey, but it didn't leave us a lot of time for thinking through issues of design as we maybe would have wanted to had we had more time. So it was just kind of a trade-off. It was either like we were going to get into the field and be able to do this, or we were going to have a perfect survey instrument or survey questionnaire. But by the time the survey questionnaire was perfect, the opportunity for field work would have disappeared. So there was a bit of a trade-off there. We had to go in with a questionnaire that was not as rigorously vetted as I think both Matthew and I would have liked. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And Matthew, from your perspective, in terms of, you know, being closer to kind of your graduate school training and looking forward for your career, like what are your thoughts on your preparation for this type of, of field research and how that might evolve uh, over time? Yeah. And it's very hard to sort of teach charisma in a way of sort of how to be a good reporter and how to interview people. Like Kristen was saying, the qualitative or the the emphasis on fieldwork is very much still alive at MIT, like Kristen said, but there's an emphasis definitely on combining that with quantitative methods of data collection. And it's just very hard to teach someone from a distance about how to be a good listener, how to ask good questions. So we had a course on qualitative methods and I think it was very well done, but I think I learned a lot more just in two days of sitting next to Kristen and going to these meetings with, you know, Peshmerga commanders at her side and seeing how she sort of navigated these issues. I think I learned a lot more in, you know, a few days of that than I did in a semester of trying to sort of be taught from a book about, you know, how to be a good reporter. So I think it's just very difficult. And that's one of the advantages of this sort of partnering with someone who's more senior, who has some experience. And I don't, 
don't think you would get that in a traditional model of very senior scholar who just sent out a graduate student into the field to go forth and do something that I wouldn't have gotten that training from my partner at the same time. So just in the same way that she was saying that she learned a little bit about quantitative methods from me, you know, I, I feel like I learned a lot more. It was a two-way street there. Well, that's fascinating. I think that that's, you know, emblematic of a great, you know, research relationship where someone, each person brings something to the table that not only do they contribute to the publication, but that also it seems like both of you have kind of helped the other uh, with your methodologies, with your ways of seeing the world um, in ways that maybe you didn't have before. So that's excellent. Just a final question. I'll go to you for this one, Matt. Can you tell us a little bit how the review process has kind of gone? Because I know that your project is one that was done more recently. And so I'm interested to know how reviewers have talked about or thought about your fieldwork and the research that's come from it. Uh, have they liked it? Have they, what have they pushed back on? I'd love to get some inside, <laughs> insights on that uh, without, of course, breaking anonymity, et cetera. Yeah. So I've submitted several articles, three articles based on the Peshmerga data, based on just solo authored portions of it. So Kristen and I are still fighting the good fight to get our co-authored pieces in tip top shape. Part of the problem is, as Kristen alluded to earlier, that you know this, this was really a window of opportunity where the field is not something that's constant, where you, know, you can go, oh, well, well, we'll go there next year, that it's going to change. And the circumstances that allowed us to do this research in the summer of 2017 evaporated by October 16th of 2017, when the Iraqi army started fighting the, the Peshmerga again. So then this comes to the review process where you know we went out and collected this data in the best way that we thought was possible at the time, but that we're not able to sort of line it up into a very linear deductive argument ahead of time. And that's been a big difficulty is sort of translating a bunch of questions and data that we got that we thought would be very interesting and sort of would tell us a lot about the situation in a sort of inductive way and translating that into a more deductive framework as is the current paradigm in political science. So that, that's been definitely one of the challenges of putting it to reviewers it's also interesting. There's a lot less questions about some of the things that were very challenging for us, like getting access and uh, getting permissions, where in some ways this is something that political science, I think, should work on. I haven't gotten any questions about that, where once the ones and zeros are programmed in, it's assumed that they're sort of inviolate. I, I think that that's maybe not such a good assumption and that we had to do a lot of work and a lot of uh, talk. And Kristen's on the phone every day with people. I'm driving out and checking up people every day during the actual fielding in order to ensure that this data collection process was clean. And that's not something that comes up in the review process. Well, and I agree with your points about, you know, on the one hand, there's obviously a lot of worthwhile debates about, you know, research transparency and how we want to protect our subjects, et cetera. And I think all of that is is correct. But you're right. At the same time, uh, we sometimes treat data as sacrosanct and, you know, don't pick at where it comes from. Is it truly random assignment? All of these types of broader issues. So I appreciate you raising that. Well, thank you both so much for telling us a bit more about your project and your experience. We're now going to welcome back Kristen Mikulich into the conversation for a broader group discussion of issues surrounding field surveys and experiments. So first, I'm going to go to you, Kristen Mikulich. I know you have this great research design. You know, you're giving some people radios and giving some people flashlights as kind of a control group. Uh, as a way to kind of causally identify the impact of radios and you know exposure to news on their political behavior, attitudes, etc. But I also know from reading your chapter that things didn't go exactly according to plan because before you arrived in Mali, you and your collaborator had planned to do a natural experiment, and then you also faced some challenges with actually distributing the radio. So could you talk us through and talk our listeners through a little bit how you deal with setting up and carrying out a field experiment when things don't exactly go according to plan? Sure. So I suppose if everything went 
according to plan, then I wouldn't have been invited to uh, contribute to this book. But as most people know that do research, um, field experiments um, or other research, especially in the global South, there's a lot of things that change between your research design that evolves when you're sitting at your desk versus when you actually go out to the field and really start trying to implement. And so our sort of first challenge was we had thought that we would be able to identify an area where there weren't any radio signals that would be distinct from an area that had just started receiving radio signals, but where people hadn't yet bought radios to gain access to those signals. So actually, we initially wanted to compare no access to the radio signals to um, being in an area where some people had access, typically village elites like the village chief who could afford a radio and might sort of trickle down information from from the uh, the radio to ordinary folks, and then compare that to you know essentially areas where ordinary people would be given radios and could access the radio signals themselves. But the problem with that is that uh, radio signals are you know they don't just <laughs> I guess work the way one might think that they just sort of reach out to a boundary and then they sort of disappear. But in fact, what happens is radio signals go in and out. And I guess anyone who's taken a road trip knows this. At some point, the radio sort of, you know, starts going in and out and then eventually it disappears when you travel away from the emission station. But this is also subject to weather. Um, and so in Mali, it's there's, of course, the Sahara Desert. And so we found that actually just the the winds off the Sahara would make it such that some villages might sometimes get radio emissions and sometimes not. And so it was really more of a fuzzy thing and we couldn't make that natural experiment work there. So we basically um, found this out just by having people ride around on motorcycles with radios (laughs) to really fact check the sort of theoretical distance that the emissions would travel based on maps that we had. and then. We sort of reduced the research more towards the field experiment. So what was the effect of distributing radios versus flashlights? And we picked the flashlights because we did want to control for the idea that people might receive something. And we also wanted to compensate people for participating in the research, which we think is really important because people are giving a lot of their time. But we we also faced further challenges after that. So One challenge was we really needed to vet carefully how we would give radios to women in this context. In these contexts, oftentimes property is really thought of more communally, but also there's, you know, a lot of sort of traditional patriarchy. And we were basically worried that if we wanted to include women in the research, which was something that was important to us we really needed to figure out a way to distribute radios so that women would actually have access and they wouldn't sort of be carried off by, um, you know, men in the family. And so we did an extensive vetting process in out-of-sample villages and, you know, just asked people, how could we, we do this in an area where 
folks had had radios for quite a long time, so they'd already sort of experienced this change in technology. And so it came out from that research that we would need to give two radios per household. And these are large extended sort of family compounds. So they're pretty big households. And one of the radios would be given to a male participant and the other to a female participant. And so by doing this, we would essentially be able to hedge this worry that the radios would sort of be commandeered by husbands or fathers or, or sons or something like that. So that was, that was a, sort of our second challenge. Our third challenge and, uh, you know, maybe our biggest challenge to the research was that before this election, Mali had really been considered a bastion of democracy in sub-Saharan Africa, had multiple parties. You know, the elections were considered reasonably free and fair up to this point. Um, but all of a sudden, there was a coup. And it was followed by a resurgence of like a low-level uh, insurgency in the north of Mali. And so this sort of happened after we had implemented the field experiment, uh, but before the election. And so we were basically left with this question, oh, okay, what do we do now? Because <laughs> we weren't sure if we could travel back there, what would be safe for the participants. I mean, we also had initial levels of shock and sort of disappointment, especially on behalf of the people that we had involved in the research. I mean, they were going through a lot. Life was, was already difficult um, in this area before there was the coup and the nearby insurgency. And life got even tougher for these folks. So we were really, yeah, we were really left with um, a question of, you know, is this the end and we can't do anything more? Or should we try to, to do something and pivot? And so we did end up being able to pivot and to collect outcome data by basically, you know, waiting, watching, making sure the security situation was going to be okay retraining enumerators in the capital city, which the capital was um, pretty far away from the, uh, the insurgency, but the, the research area was sort of on the line of, of rebel and state-controlled territory. Only when we thought that it was safe did we allow the enumerators, who were local to, the, to those villages, um, collect outcome data. Fascinating. Well, I mean, this whole concept of pivoting in the field, I think, is one that probably resonates with, with Kristen and Matt as well, because uh, obviously for field experiments and surveys, in some sense, it's supposed to be the most controlled thing, right? That's why we can causally identify supposedly the impact of having a radio uh, or other types of treatments. But uh, in Matt and Kristen's case, you know, you guys had some challenges, not only because, you know, you were a team who were putting this project together, even though you were in different places, but you guys also had some challenges with your local teams on the ground, the people who were collecting uh, interview information from uh, Iraqi Kurdish uh, fighters. So could you guys uh, tell us a about that, maybe starting with Matt? So the first thing is, right, we're a team of co-authors back in the United States. And through our previous experience, we already knew a good network of people over in Iraqi Kurdistan. So 
certainly that was sine qua non for being able to execute this type of research is our previous experience. But then when you get over there, you don't just need to know one or two people. You need to have a whole team with enumerators who are comfortable going around the country, asking people these potentially somewhat sensitive questions. And that it took a little doing to be able to build enough teams. We had four teams of five members each. Each of them are led by a university professor. Most of them were former graduates, former students of the university professors or current students. And thankfully, we had a really great partner, Musla Irwani, who was from Kurdistan and who had studied in the UK and was great. So I think that's the first lesson is to really be able to have a local counterpart who you can really put your trust in. And I think that's an issue, not just in these sort of in potentially hazardous situations like Mali or Iraq, but even the United States, right? I mean, you go to the mechanic. (laughs) If you don't trust your mechanic, you're always wondering, boy, do I really need this transmission fluid changed? Or is this guy sort of just bilking me? What's going on? This isn't something that's unique to Iraq or Mali is right. You need to be able to have an experience of of trust with someone and that we shouldn't maybe overemphasize the fact that this is a product of working out, quote, in the field out in a in a foreign environment. But that having that person you can really put your trust in uh, is really essential. And then past that, then we had to take on people who were not necessarily vetted by the local partners. And this is where we really got into the problem that leads to the episode you can read about in the book where one of the survey teams has been uh, has been falsifying surveys and where we confront them about this and where I wind up getting into this argument about survey falsification and payment in the middle of this military base in northern Iraq. And uh, I guess Kristen might be able to talk a little bit about her perspective on the action that was going on there uh, and what she was think about trying to manage this situation somewhat remotely with me being on the ground and uh, she was in, in Turkey there. Sure. So I'll just chime in here quickly. So I think, you know, Matt's provided some great context, but uh, I will say a few things. So Matt and I were really constrained in this study, given the nature of the study, I, I think by four things. So first was just the timing. Um, from the time we knew we could launch by the uh, to the time we could get into the field, it was very short, and a lot was changing really rapidly. So there was just this timing constraint in that the materials had to be changed and updated and then be ready to launch. And so a lot of our effort was going into that. And then the second thing is the, the sampling frame. We had hoped to get an inclusive list of all the members of the Peshmerga and be able to sample from this. Turned out not to be possible, so we were then operating on a snowball-based sample um, and then that came to complicate the process of team building, because anybody who's familiar with the contracts of Iraqi Kurdistan knows that there's also divisions within the Peshmerga. And we had to for, have... I'm so sorry to interrupt you. For listeners who don't know so much about Iraqi Kurdistan, can you tell us just like very briefly who the Peshmerga are? Yeah. So the, uh, the Peshmerga are basically the fighting unit affiliated with uh, the Kurdish regional government in Iraq. They're an official fighting unit, but they're divided amongst themselves. Um, and so uh, they were, they're primarily divided into the 70s and the 80s. The 70s and 80s had fought a civil war in the 1990s against one another. And then they had been formed into these separate units and then also uh, joint battalions or forces. Uh, and so we needed to sample across all of these groups in addition to paramilitary groups. Uh, and so although we had this fantastic partner on the ground that Matt uh, talks about, we also, having one partner wasn't enough because we had to be able to get to all of these bases and sample uh, from all sections uh, of the Peshmerga. And so while our connections were really good in one area, in another area, they were bad. And that's where, not necessarily bad, but let's just say weaker. 
Um, and that's where we ran into some of the problems with the falsification of data. I think the other tough thing that we were facing, though, is we were also bounded on the backside by the Kurdish referendum for independence. So there was a Kurdish referendum for independence scheduled to come up in the fall, and we needed to have all of the work done um, by the time that referendum took place because we knew it was going to substantially potentially change the results, the way people responded to our survey. Uh, so we were rushing, and in the rush, we maybe didn't have the time to vet uh, some of these field teams in the way that one normally would or would hope to do. And this was a real challenge uh, for us. Now, let's backtrack a little bit to uh, what Matt was telling us previously about encountering this instance of dishonesty in the field. Um, the way we came across this instance of dishonesty was really twofold. So I was back in Turkey working on another field project and Matt was in the field doing on the ground monitoring with some other team members. And I was watching the data come in in real time on Qualtrics. And Qualtrics has this nice feature where you can see how long the surveys take. And we noticed that this one team, not to be named, um, they were, seemed to be doing surveys extremely quickly. Um, and it was, it, it just wasn't right. So Matt had to confront them. And the difficulty was, is when you confront them, we were worried about losing access to that region because uh, that region of Kurdistan in particular, because social ties are so strong, tribal, tribal ties are very strong. One of the team members was related to a, a high profile figure in tribal society. And we were worried by, that by confronting them, we may lose access um, to that particular field site. So as you'll read in the chapter, it all worked out in the end, uh, but it did create quite a bit of tension on, on the ground. And uh, Matt was the man on the spot having to make the hard decisions. I was advising from afar at that point. Um, but it wasn't easy. It certainly doesn't sound that way. Yeah, it sounds like it was a, an incredibly challenging situation to have to navigate, especially remotely. I want to ask the three of you to sort of pull back a little bit and think about how the the field of field experiments, large scale survey research, how has that changed over time methodologically? What do you think are some of the some of the best methods being used right now. What's the what's the current state of the art with regard to that methodology, and how have things changed and developed over time? Uh, maybe we'll start with Kristen Mikulich and then move on to Matt and and Kristen Fabi. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. So I think wow, uh, a lot has changed with regards to field experiments. I remember going to a conference when I was a graduate student, and there was some some old timer experimenters there, and they were basically saying how their research used to be rejected from journals because people are like, what are experiments? You know, those are weird. Like, you know, <laughs> who would believe, you know, this isn't a good political science. And it, at some point, things kind of turned around and people started thinking like, oh, well, they people use experiments in natural science all the time. And people like in medical sciences, you know, testing drugs and placebos out, you'd only kind of believe the results of an experiment. And, and so I think over time, norms changed in political science with um, people thinking, wow, this is a really neat method to really gain traction on causality, because so much of our social world is endogenous. Things basically mutually reinforce each other. And it's hard to disentangle what's causing what or, you know, many things are, are causing something. So I think that 
experiments, I think mostly started off being more lab based or maybe, um, you know, survey experiments, but then they did eventually go more into the field. And so now there's many specialists of field experiments in political science. And I think that that movement basically originated from people saying, hey, we want to be really policy relevant. We want to go out and take things outside the lab to a, a natural environment where there's many things going on at once in our natural world versus a laboratory where, you know, people can have a lot of control over what people are seeing and doing, but of course they're unnaturally focused on the computer or the task or whatever they're doing. And, you know, it's free of sort of regular life activities. So that started to be uh, come sort of just a different way to do experimentation. And a lot of people now focus on collaboration with policymakers. So recognizing that researchers could, of course, implement an intervention and do the evaluation. But then, you know, what happens after the research is over? Things sort of, you know, just disappear. So it's better if policymakers are the implementing agents in the research, because then if the policy works, then it can be scaled up. So in in our research example, we were collaborating with USAID, who is one of the major organizations involved in setting up radio towers. And they were also distributing radios and they're interested to know, oh, you know, what are the effects of, of sort of spreading access to national public radio? Kristen and Matt, what about you guys? What What's your perspective in terms of where you see this methodology today, where does it come from? Where's it going? Yeah, so I'd be happy to chime in here a little bit. I should uh, be clear that we didn't necessarily have uh, a field experiment, although we had survey experiments built into the survey instrument that, that we used or the questionnaire that we used with our respondents, with the combatants um, in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. And I think one of the areas in which survey research in general is expanding and I, I see this as a, as a net positive, is looking at unconventional or non-traditional sample frames and thinking about ways to gain attitudinal and public opinion research from groups that typically fall out of the sample frames that we would use if you use a traditional survey company to do your work. So I had run a previous survey in Iraq in which I use a traditional survey company they had a grid system. They pounded the pavement, uh, knocked on the door of you know every tenth shop, and that was great. Um, but we know that in a lot of uh, developing country contexts, and even in non-developing country contexts, that many people that we care about, that we care to learn about in a social scientific context, aren't easily reached in this way. And combatants were amongst those. They typically live um, away from the general population, many times on bases, especially when they're fighting. And a big contribution for our work, and I think a way that the field is going in general, is people are thinking about creative ways to gain access to these populations, which might not always be entirely representative or randomized. Uh, It might not meet all of the standards of perfect social science or perfect science, um, but we do need to take a rough cut. And I see this as kind of the frontier uh, in some ways. The second second thing I think is a lot of people have... um, 
move towards this idea of, uh, you know, establishing a pre-analysis plan before you go into the field, registering it, making sure all of the questions that you're going to ask are very clear, the hypotheses that you're going to test, you know what they are, you even uh, have a very good sense of priors and expectations. And while I think that this is generally good, and while I think that our research perhaps could have benefited from a little bit more pre-planning if we hadn't been bounded so much by time constraints, there is something that is lost in the process of not being able to do iterative field work. So that is not being able to launch your survey, learn from it, go back, tweak it, um, try to expand your sample, run into a barrier. Uh, and so these pre-analysis plans are great for getting you to think very clearly about what it is you'd like to do in an ideal world. Uh, but for researchers in the field, I think it's also really important to realize that oftentimes uh, you shouldn't, that shouldn't be a straight jacket for the way that you're approaching your work, uh, because you will come, uh, come into contact with the unexpected, uh, no matter how much pre-planning you do. You know, that was a theme that came up in so many of the chapters that people contributed to stories from the field, which is that you can plan, but you should probably be prepared to be a little bit flexible uh, because things are going to change. Sounds like you think that applies to doing survey research just as much as, as any other kind of research. Absolutely. And I think that a really good part about your the project that you're doing here that Peter and Ora have put together is, and that we, we need more of going forward, is acknowledging the sort of messiness of field research and that, you know, when you go out and into the real world, that things are going to change and that it's very easy for you to come home and write a paper in which everything seems to have flowed very easily and uh, logically and in a very sanitary way. And that that's actually not really doing, sort of giving in a false impression of the world, people who are trying to understand the real world, I think is so I think that's a great thing to come out of this project. I think another thing that I would like that possibly would be good for this field is to have more right have more of this discussion and verification of what actually occurred where it's very easy for people to say, oh, well, we sampled these populations and we did a random sample and that quite frequently, you know, that it just doesn't didn't really happen that way. Not that people are, are sort of lying, but that, you know, you, you you pay someone to execute this very rigorous program that is, you know, looks very regimented in the abstract, but that it's just impossible for that to actually work out the way that you plan it in the real world. And that sort of acknowledging that and showing where you deviated from the ideal is, is going to be an important part for future research in political science. So I think you guys do a great job of laying out, you know, some of the advances and some of the challenges. You know, on the one hand, as Chris and Mikulich said, you know, maybe field experiments used to be not so well respected. But of course, you know, as most of us know, it, it's seemingly the opposite these days. A lot of the top journals love experiments, love causal identification, love all those types of things. Uh, and then Kristen Fabe correctly says, you know, we have these potentially more rigorous designs, even though potentially they have some drawbacks there on not being able to go, you know, back and forth, make adjustments, et cetera. So I just want to transition here to ethics and talk about the challenges that field experiments and surveys pose. Because on the one hand, you know, it's better in some sense in terms of causal identification, understanding what's going on, if you can do a field experiment and if you can do an intervention, have a treatment and a control group. On the other hand, you are intervening in people's lives, right? And these aren't lab experiments. These are field experiments where you're traveling to either communities in the United States or foreign countries if you're American. And you are intervening in people's day-to-day -day lives. So I want to ask you guys about some of the ethical challenges that you personally have faced or you feel like the field of field experiments and surveys has faced. 
Uh, let me start with you, Kristen Mikulich. You wrote in your chapter, quote, you can't rely on the IRB alone to make ethical calls. And for our listeners who don't know, IRB stands for Institutional Review Board. It's this thing at any college university that basically evaluates. It's a council of professors and other um, members of the administration who evaluate your projects and make sure that they're ethically okay before you're allowed to execute them. But Kristen, you say that you shouldn't just rely on the IRB to make those ethical calls. Can you talk a little bit more about what you meant by that? That's right, Peter. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I definitely advocate getting IRB approval. (laughs) So don't get me wrong there. But the IRB folks at universities, first of all, sometimes they actually are used to just reviewing medical studies and they don't really know much about social science studies. Some IRBs have uh, people who are more familiar with with social research. And so that's an improvement that's um, becoming more widespread. But still, most of these people are just not going to know the context. If you're going to a context like Iraq or Mali or something like that, you as the researcher should be much more familiar with that area than anybody who's sitting on the IRB. So they won't be able to have enough on the ground knowledge to know whether you're really ensuring the safety of the research participants. But even more than that, the IRB actually isn't required to think about whether you're keeping enumerators safe or whether you're keeping yourself safe or anybody else involved. And so that's an additional level of thinking that people really need to take seriously, especially in these contexts where it's post-conflict or ongoing conflict. And that, I mean, that becomes even more relevant nowadays with uh, COVID-19, how we're going to do research moving forward and make sure we keep everybody safe doing that. The second thing that I'd probably add to that is I think that any interventions really need to be locally vetted. And even things that are seemingly obvious, like, oh, this would only have a positive impact. There's a lot of different examples, especially in development of well-intentioned foreigners coming in and trying to help people or improve things, and then they end up doing the opposite. So I think no matter how obvious an intervention is, it really needs to be locally vetted and ideally delivered by people who are local to the communities where you're studying. Yeah, I think that's well said. So uh, Matt, your thoughts on that, because you guys obviously did a field survey you know, in Iraq. Uh, did you guys have any type of local vetting for you know, the ethical issues posed by your research, or is that something you could look into in the future? What are your thoughts on that? If you have someone locally who you trust, and you, they can definitely assist you a lot with this and going through. So, for example, one big part was asking questions about potentially traumatic experiences that people have had in the military or before they joined. There's a long history of violence there. There's the attempted genocide by the Saddam Hussein regime against the Kurds. And many people had experienced that. We had initially hoped to be able to ask people more specifics about what they their experiences were and that 
In fact, this was very disturbing to many people to talk about, well, during the Bathists, obviously, you know, in a way that, you know, is sort of obvious once you say it now, but that, you know, when you talk about, well, what, did you have to move away when you were attacked by Saddam Hussein? You know, that you could only sort of ask the question in a very general way of, were you victimized by the Saddam Hussein regime? And any attempt to get more than that potentially was causing big problems. So your local, someone local who you trust is definitely very important for that. To go to the point about enumerator safety, you know, there's a lot of times where people will be willing to do things and go places that maybe you yourself wouldn't be willing to go. I'm very risk tolerant having been in the Marine Corps, but I know that many academics would not have wanted to be driving around to different uh, military bases in northern Iraq, but that there are people in northern Iraq who are willing to do that in exchange for money. And that the fact that they're willing to do that doesn't necessarily mean that it is ethical for you to ask them to do that. But on the other hand, the fact that you are increasing their risk of, you know, serious bodily harm or death, you know, that just because there is some increased risk doesn't necessarily mean that it's unethical either, you know, that this is in fact a lot of the way the world works is people agreeing to do things for money that entail risk. And so this is a, a I think a lot of times it's it's boiled down to this very simple, you know, either, oh, if you're increasing risk, then then it's unethical or, well, if they agree to do it. So it's obviously fine. Um, and that act, actually that this is a, a much bigger tension that I think only as uh, Kristen Mitchell said, you know, that you need to think about a lot on yourself that, you know, you can't really rely on other people's to do it. Uh, the final point I'd say for ethics is that, you know, there's a temptation here to interpret a lot of what happens in terms of, well, I'm in this foreign context and this is the field. So that our experience was about enumerator dishonesty and that people had essentially been trying to cheat us and then extorted us out of money. And there's some temptation to say, well, this is because we're in this conflict zone or this is the way things are here. And yet, as I was talking about earlier, well, you're always you're also worried about your mechanic bilking you out of money when you're back in the United States so that it's very you have to be very careful not to fall into this trap of attributing too much to the context while still realizing that that the context is different and that probably also the lack of institutions is also contributing to many of these problems of trust and problems that we encounter in administering surveys. So these are sort of a, a number of different ethical dilemmas that are, it's very hard for other people to tell you what's right and what's wrong and that researchers have to put a lot of thought in. I think that's well said. And I think, you know, your point that you keep coming back to about how this is not necessarily unique in any way to a quote unquote foreign country for Americans is one we try to stress throughout the book. Um, we have multiple contributors, both American and foreigner, who are doing field work in the United States and talking about that as quote unquote the field. So you're right that a lot of this stuff applies regardless of the locale uh, of your research. Kristen Fabe, kind of final thoughts on ethics, you know, for field experiments and field surveys going forward. What are some of the other things that, you know, budding uh, graduate students and young researchers should be thinking about as they design and try to conduct their field experiments and surveys? Yeah, so I think uh, the points that Kristen and Matt brought up so far are extremely important. And I would just like to add maybe one or two things there. So I'm a big proponent of trying to get local buy-on in as at as many levels as possible. So whenever I do research uh, in any field context. So that typically means at the level of government, if I'm working in a foreign country, it means the level of that foreign government. Uh, in this case, it meant the level of that foreign security service. So we, Matt and I conducted a number of high level meetings um, with foreign officials and basically asked, 
is it okay that we do this research here? The IRB in the United States may have said it was okay, but is it okay with you? Um, you want to make sure that you don't run afoul of any local laws and regulations. So that's the first level that I always just want to make sure that you cross the T's and dot the I's on. Uh, you don't run, want to run afoul of that. And then the second one is at the level of testing your survey instrument or the experiment, running pilots. And this kind of comes back to Matt's points about uh, re-traumatizing individuals when you're asking about sensitive topics. If in the, in the, in the process of piloting your research materials, you can sense um, from enumerators or the people that you're working with to pilot on the native speakers of the language, uh, people who've grown up in that context, which co questions just make them really uncomfortable uh, and would cause people some sort of distress and, and which ones, uh, which ones are may, may go over uh, better uh, and be, be less traumatizing. And you need to be really empathetic and cognizant of that. It may mean that you collect less in terms of data, uh, but uh, it will, you know, preserve uh, your your dignity and respect and, and ethical concerns. And then the the last thing um, that I I think I would uh, mention on on this topic of of ethics is drawing generalizations from the research once you come back home. So I think that it's it's also really important every time you do these projects. Typically, the sample is limited. Even if it's representative, it may be hard to to draw conclusions. It's also it's really important to bound uh, any broad generalizations and not to make sweeping generalizations. So in this particular context, we try to say we did a study with this population. It wasn't perfect. This is what we found. More research is warranted. And take our take our conclusions with a grain of salt. We didn't speak to everybody or even every combatant in Iraqi Kurdistan. So uh, we don't pretend to speak for everybody. And I think that that's always important to make clear. So. I think we want to close by asking each of you to offer a little bit of advice. So what's the, the most important bit of advice that each of you would offer, just generally speaking, to a student or professor or colleague who's interested in conducting their very first field experiment or doing their very first field survey? What advice would you offer to that person? Uh, Kristen Mikulich, let's let's start with you. So the uh, the big piece of advice that I offer in the book and sort of the closing statements is to build in extra money to the budget. And this might seem like a really boring piece of advice, but it's actually really important and it fits into this overall theme of having to just pivot when you're on the ground from your initial plans. And Pivoting in your plans is going to mean, you know, pivoting with your budget too. So always add on maybe 10 or 20% contingency money onto your budget. That is excellent advice. And I think probably applies to, to a lot of things in life as much as we can. Um, Kristen Fabi, how would you, what's the one piece of advice that you might offer somebody who is doing their very first field survey? Yeah, so um, I think Kristen's advice is is super sound. Um, so I would echo that. The second thing I would say is that I think that it's really important that people spend some time before you run a survey or before you do an experiment. These are things that it's very difficult to go in and go out. So you may be able to run the survey or run the experiment itself in a pretty short duration. Um, but without local context, you're either going to get the questions wrong, um, you're going to get the, the identification strategy and the experiment wrong. There, things are going to go wrong in some way, shape, or form, no matter what. But the more time you spend with that local community before you actually do the work, 
the less likely that is. So I'm a big proponent of, um, I guess for lack of a better term, what my professors used to call the poke and soak uh, approach to field work, where you go and you actually spend quite a bit of time in the place um, before you launch uh, a big quantitative study of any type. Matt, what about you? What's the what's the one bit of advice that you would offer somebody who is interested in in doing survey research for the first time in the field? I think monitoring is extremely important and something that we don't think about quite enough in terms of having a strategy to monitor how it is that what you want to implement is actually being implemented and that anything where you are not verifying that what you say has occurred or that somebody else is telling you that you might as well have not done it and that you need to have a, a strategy in order to to do that uh, to ensure that you know if you that you're trying to conduct something somewhat rigorous and somewhat resembling science which uh i would say that <laughs> you know for all of our problems uh we are definitely are not the uh, have that conducted the most uh rigorous the cleanest uh survey but that maybe it does tell us a little bit about the world which is what we all want from political science it is indeed yeah and having read it i think it's very clear that you guys did make a great contribution and you know again as you guys noted the book is all about people doing great work but nonetheless they're never being the perfect research design the perfect execution the perfect findings and i think as kristen fabe said correctly being transparent about that is one of the key elements of social science so we really appreciate you guys being so open and honest, not only today in the podcast, but also in your writing in the book. Kristen Fabe, Matthew Kansian, Kristen Mikulich, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss your fascinating fieldwork. Thanks for having us, Peter and Nora. Happy to have you guys. Uh, for more great stories and insights on fieldwork from our guests today and over 40 other scholars, check out our book with the same name as the podcast. As always, we'd like to thank Boston College, Clark University, MIT, and Columbia University Press for their support for the book and for this podcast. See you next time on Stories from the Field. Stories from the Field.